If you have not uh, turned there in your Bibles yet, you certainly can. John chapter 2, as you have just heard it read. I want to welcome you to Genesis Community Church. My name is Hans. I get to serve as one of the pastors here. Always good to be with you. And we have been marching along, plodding along through the Gospel of John for a few weeks now. And we're finally in chapter 2. There are 21 chapters in John, so if you do the math, you go, well, okay, so five times whatever, you know, it's gonna, we're going to be here a little while. We're not going to be here all the way through uh, in that long. We did a little longer on the prologue, which is the first 18 verses, and then we get larger chunks of narrative as we go from there. So I want to welcome you to this church. If you are new or a guest with us, very glad that you're here. If you're just still getting started in the year, I know I think it's the third Sunday of the new year, but it's still kind of like, well, got to get our lives together some, at some point in time. I uh, want to invite you into our reading plan. I'll talk more about that after, uh, after we finish communion and uh, invite you into that. But it's just good to be in God's Word. And so we're in John 2. My first exposure to John 2 that I can recall was somebody convincing me that drinking was fine because what was Jesus' first miracle? Turning water into wine. And so they were trying to say, well, no, so Jesus clearly is for drinking. He's pro-drinking. Um, and, you know, like that, that uh, <laughs> I'm not really sure that word means what you think it means. I don't think John 2 is a statement on uh, drinking. It's a statement on the Messiah. So let's be sure we get our statements right before we try to disprove any one thing from any one passage. John chapter 2 is part of what are called the book of signs. Now, that's not something John calls it. John doesn't say, this is the book of signs, get ready, everybody. Remember, like, Greek manuscripts were all uppercase, all written together. You had to, like, so he's not like, and now we're in the book of signs. He doesn't do that. So... Uh, we have called it the book of signs because it does, uh, you could say it starts after the prologue 119. It kind of starts in chapter 2 where the signs begin. Uh, so, so from chapter 2 through chapter 12, Jesus is doing works and those works demonstrate that he is the one sent from God to save us from our sins. Uh, some people will get a little, like, they want to get, kind of look at it and make sure there's a certain number of signs. Like, oh, there are clearly seven signs in John 2 through 12. Because John will say, this was the first sign. And sometimes he'll say, this was another sign. But I think if you try to, like, narrow it down just to seven, like, some people will find eight. And, like, so, so, like, that's not, like, we're not going to play the game of trying to find how many signs there are. Because John himself says at the end of the gospel, he did so many things that we couldn't keep up with all of it. So, so even, we'll even learn, like, he did more signs than, even in the first two chapters or three chapters, than John wanted to log. Clearly, he was demonstrating himself as the Messiah, the one sent from God, throughout. But we do, in John chapter 2, get this first little bit of Jesus' power and, a, uh, I guess, a, a preview of coming attractions, what, what kind of man is this? Now, for you in the room, you might be like an early or middle or late adopter. There's also what's called a never adopter. So be it with technology, be it with people, be it with places. Some, of, some people are like, I'm in, right? You're like, hey, we want to try something new. And we're going to, you're like, I'm in. You're like, well, you, you know, let me finish. Like, we're going to, you know, you know, wear jorts all day. You're cool with that? But yeah, I'm in, whatever it is. Like, so they don't, they don't even need any specific thing. They're just in. And then other people, and I'm kind of one of those, who go, let's just wait and see. Let's go, like, like I'm, I'm, I'm not cool never getting on the train, but I need a few weeks of making sure it works. 
Then there's people who, like, way after that, they're ready to make sure it works. Then there's some people who are like, just, I'm never in. And you're going to start to see that as you go through the Gospel of John. Jesus is going to start really shaking things up. He's going to start demonstrating himself as the Messiah. He's going to show it through signs. And both Jew and Gentile have a decision to make. I will say, though, that the Jewish decision is going to be a little different than the Gentile decision for this reason. They have had the writings, the prophets, the history, the promise. They've they've had that as a nation, and they've been anticipating the Messiah. Remember when the Jewish leaders in chapter 1 came to John the Baptist and said, well, are you this, are you this, are you this? And so they had all of that. The Gentiles didn't have that. They weren't looking for that in the same way. There were some in the book of Acts called God-fearers, but there weren't a lot of just Gentiles who were really, really adept at understanding the promise of the Jewish Messiah. So everybody had decisions to make, but in a sense, for the Gentile, it was a little different. He's like, okay, you. The, the, the Jewish person had to really think differently about all that was going on because there was a certain expectation of who this Messiah was, how this Messiah would act, and how they would serve. And Jesus wasn't really, in a sense, he wasn't living up to their expectations. He wasn't showing them what they wanted to see. But throughout, there has to be this this same question of, are you willing to accept Jesus as this Messiah? We're going to see in this first miracle John demonstrates, the wedding at Cana, or the wonders at the wedding, or the turning water into wine, however you might talk about it. We're going to see Jesus do something but that he's also, what he does is going to mean something. Okay, he's going to do something, but what he does is going to mean something. And every time you read a passage in the Gospel of John, you need to be asking yourself this question. How does this help me understand Jesus? Because that's what John's trying to do. Right? So I want, I'm writing this so that you would believe. So when you read something, you go, well, how does this help me believe? How does this help us believe? What is this showing us? And so we're going to see a few things. We first just got to set the context of where we are in the wedding. There's a demonstration of trust from Jesus's mother, which is unique here. Then there's the sign, right? Verses one through five just give us the problem. Verses six through, I think, nine or ten give us the, how Jesus responds. And then verse 11 shows the belief, okay? So we're going to see just kind of each of these paragraphs, what goes on. But we start with this big problem, <clears throat> a big problem. Anybody here who is, is, is pulled off, paid for, been to, hosted a wedding, you don't want to be the one that runs out of food. You don't want to be the one that runs out of drink. You don't want to be the one that runs out of anything. I mean, the, the, the shame that you wear when you go, hey, there's no more fried catfish. In, we were in South Louisiana, so that's fried catfish. No more fried catfish in the buffet at the seafood restaurant, right? That's not a, that is not a good thing. There are no more boudin balls. Right? I don't really like the taste of alcohol, so if we run out of wine, that's not a big deal for me. You know, no more cherry Coke, that's a bigger problem. But it's a big deal to host a first century Mediterranean world wedding and run out of something. It's a big deal even now, to run out of something. There's, a, there's some embarrassment that you wear if that happens. 
I can't believe I didn't plan for this, right? I mean, how much time do we spend going, how many people, how much per head, please RSVP. Now it's like go to the, you know, tie the knot websites, and you got to be sure you tell everybody you're there, and they text you and go, please, you know, tell me you're going to be there, right? All that work that gets done so that you are sure you don't do what happened here, which is run out. Now, different than our weddings, these weddings can run as long as a week. I mean, so there's, there's, there's a lot you have to plan for. You're not just feeding somebody once. <laughs> you got to feed them for a while. I went to a party one time. I was a videographer for it, and, and this house was gigantic. I mean, gigantic like it had a basement in Texas that was a bowling alley, okay? And so, like, it's a, it was a big house. And this guy, I mean, you got dinner. The party was still going at midnight. Breakfast came out. So now you're getting breakfast. It's like one in the morning. People are having Krispy Kreme and omelets. Like it's, I'm like, you just ate dinner three hours ago. But when you're partying, you're partying. Wedding festivity. There's a big problem at this wedding because they run out of wine. Let's look at this. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, from the events that happened in chapter 1. So we've gone about a week is what's going on. On the third day... There was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was invited to the wedding with his disciples. Everyone's going. But when the wine ran out, uh-oh, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. That's a pretty big problem. It's a pretty big problem. They have no wine. What do I do with that? What do we do with that? So, so what happens? Jesus' mother comes to him with the problem. Jesus at this point in time has not demonstrated signs and wonders. Okay? So he hasn't, he hasn't shown himself. Now remember from Luke, Mary does get an idea of who this man is going to be, this Messiah born to her. She's not, she's not in the dark. It has been revealed. But still, Jesus hasn't shown himself. And that was 30 years ago. He hasn't been doing signs this entire time. And so, so Jesus' mother goes to him and says, they're out of wine. Out of wine. Now look at his response. Woman, what does this have to do with me? And essentially he's going, why is this my problem? This isn't my problem. What does this matter have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Now, a few things, and these are just uh, hypotheses, but a few things could, could be what's going on here. Maybe Mary was connected to this family, and so she had a role in hosting. That could be something that's going on, and that's why she cared that they were out of it. It wasn't just like any random person. But as you know, right, at a wedding, kind of all the moms feel like it's important that everything works right. So it could just be that somebody shows up and, and, and goes, hey, this is it. But Mary could have had that role. Why does she go to Jesus, her firstborn? It could be that Joseph is out of the picture. Uh, meaning the, the thought is maybe Joseph had died. Uh, because there's really no reference of him after the birth narrative. We don't really hear a lot in Jesus' early life. And so perhaps Joseph is no longer there. And so where do you go? You go to next in line, which is the firstborn son. And so she's going to her firstborn son to ask him to address the issue. And like a good Jewish man in that society, what does he do? He takes care of his mom. He addresses the need. But his answer is interesting. What does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. 
And there's this kind of movement where he is separating what he must do to honor the will of his father from the will of his mother. The separation that's coming, where he goes, what does this have to do with me? My hour, my time has not come. And so he doesn't just do it. He doesn't just go, okay, I'll take care of it, mom, whatever you need. Many of you know, if your mom calls, you just do, you do what mom asks. Do what mom asks. I'm, I'm, I'm in. What does he do? Jesus separates what he is to do, his mission on this earth, from what is being asked, to him, asked of him in the moment. Why? Because he was sent here to do the will of his father. He has a mission to accomplish. And that idea of time, if you look in John, for example, in John 17, one other times, the time likely refers to time of his crucifixion. My time hasn't come. Why, why are we talking about this? Why are you asking me to do this now? My time hasn't, hasn't come. And that's how D.A. Carson puts it. Great commentator on John. I'll just say, it looks like there's a separation from his will, separate from his family's will. That's a tough line to draw. We all have to draw it as disciples, don't we? <clears throat> I mean, Jesus said, I didn't come to bring peace but a sword. That's a harder one for us to understand. But, but parents aren't going to get along in the same way. And children and parents might not get along either because, because your allegiance is to me. And Jesus has some statements that he says in the Gospels which are rather piercing as to our allegiance, aren't they? Which are, somebody goes, I want to follow you, but please just let me go take care of this family matter first. And Jesus says, anybody who does that isn't following me. When Jesus' family, remember this, when Jesus' family was around, he was teaching and working, and and Jesus' family wanted to go see him. So what happens? Well, a messenger comes and goes, hey, your mother, your family's here. They want to see you. And what does Jesus say? Who? Who is that? Who is that? Which, I mean, that's stone cold. Even you know now, right? Like one of the biggest, like it's always, like one of the biggest ways you trash talk on the basketball court is to go, who are you? Right? Who are you? But that, in a sense, that's what Jesus does. Wait, wait a minute. Who, who's asking for me? To be an Israelite man? And make that kind of distinction between your family and your heavenly father? What does he say? He goes, the one who does the will of my father is my mother and my sister and my brother. That's a battle line. Some of us don't feel it because by God's grace we have believing parents, we have believing grandparents. We come from a line of believers. But even then, we can really mix that up and think, oh, because we're all on the same page about Jesus, we're always going to agree. And when somebody goes, I think I'm hitting the mission field. I need to go follow Jesus here. That's hard. That's hard. You go, well, are you sure? Because, oh, there are lost people here too. Yeah, but there are also a lot more found people. So I'm going. I'm going where there are fewer people who know the Lord. I must. That separation is hard. And in that moment, Jesus says, this isn't, right? What does this have to do with me? But there's this unique thing that happens still in verse 5. That there's still trust from Jesus' mother to Jesus to handle whatever the issue is and however he sees fit. Look at verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. But this is just after in verse 4 he says, 
what does this have to do with me? My time hasn't come. It certainly doesn't sound like he's amicable to fixing the problem. It doesn't seem that way. And yet, what does his mother do? Do whatever he tells you. And I think what is going on here is that Mary, though having not seen Jesus' miracles, having been promised who the Messiah would be, having that spoken to her, she leaves the issue with him. She is trusting him to address the issue. You handle it. She's not even controlling how or if it were to happen. She leaves it in his hand. Now, why might he do it? Why might he do it? That's interesting. I mean, I, I, I think it's a legitimate question. Okay, so she leaves in his hands. He could say, no, I'm sticking to my guns. Verse 4, my time hasn't come. Not doing it. But there are interesting verses in the Old Testament prophesied about the Messiah and the, the reign of the Messiah and what he's going to bring. And one of the, one of the components of the ministry of the Messiah is wine will flow. Just footnote that, that wine will flow. That, that, that some, some part of this messianic reign, this kingdom that will be, is there will be wine, right? Which is a sign of feasting and festivity. Amos 9, 13 and 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of the grapes, uh, whom, he, uh, whom, whom sows the seed, the mountain shall drip sweet with wine. And all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel, and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink their wine, and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. There is this idea that, that when the Lord is restoring, wine is there. There are other passages in Jeremiah, it happens as well, where there's this link between feasting and festivity and celebration and, and this rain, what God will do when he restores people. When he restores that nation. And so that could be what's going on. He's demonstrating his power. But he's doing it in a way that's actually going to highlight the power of the Messiah, the promise of the Messiah, and his superiority over the old system. Over the old system. Look at verses 6 through 10. <clears throat> what you're going to see is first where the source is. There were six stone water jars for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. So you could just estimate 150 gallons. Okay, that's what, basically what we have. Let's just put it that way. But 150 gallons in these purification jars. You're not drinking from a purification jar. That's not what it's there for. It's there for cleansing. So you don't, you don't just go, hey, give me some of that, right? Slam it. It's like if you go to churches that have holy water in the front, you just don't go pour your glass and slam that stuff. Right? And so there is a specific use, purification. Old Testament law, Old Testament rites. And so what does Jesus do? There are six of these, and he gives some instruction to the people who are working the celebration. He says, fill them with water. Fill them to the brim. So now we have a source. Purification jars filled with water. Okay? And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. Because usually there would be somebody in charge. So they took it. 
The master of the feast tasted the water. It became wine, did not know where it came from, though the servants knew, because they drew it out. The master called the bridegroom and said, Everyone serves the good wine first. When the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Now, ancient, you know, first century wine was diluted from what our like modern wine is. I'm not trying to say, it, I'm not, it wasn't grape juice. I'm not trying to make any argument for any of that. Like, it was wine, but it wasn't, like, the wine we have would probably be considered Old Testament strong drink. Um, <clears throat> it wasn't as, like, our wine is stronger than this wine uh, in general. So it was, it was more watered down, but it wasn't like you were, we weren't drinking grape juice. Let's put it that way. And so what happens here is that Jesus brings out the best wine from purification jars. Huh. Huh. What, what might Jesus be showing us here? What might be going on here? Best wine. Something we wouldn't have expected. Something we weren't looking for. Something we hadn't anticipated. Coming out of purification jars that we're not even supposed to drink out of. And yet this man brought something phenomenal out of something used as a Purification as a rite is something we were supposed to do to cleanse ourselves. What do you make of that? Well, what does John teach us? Even in the prologue, from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law came through Moses, but grace and peace came through Jesus Christ. What do you see here? purification ritual, cleansing. What does Jesus do from that but provide something superior? And it's not just like, I mean, think about this, because this is the character of the Messiah toward even us. It's not like he just had to do adequate, right? Like adequate is just like, just show me you can do it. Right? Fill them up halfway. Fill them up a third of the way. Fill up one of them halfway. You could have done any of those things and still demonstrated power. But what does the Messiah do? Take them all and fill them all the way up. That's abounding grace. That's abounding provision. That is something that cannot be replicated. And he does it because he's Jesus. And he's a giver of grace. Better things come from lesser things. Not because the thing itself was good, but because Jesus transforms it. He transforms it. That's why this isn't just about water becoming wine, which is miraculous. It's about water becoming the best wine out of an old source. And the host of the party is stunned. And you know why he's stunned. Because you're not going to, you're going to get your best wine out first, then people are going to be drunk. That's what's going on. They're going to have had too much to drink, and then you can slip them the garbage wine. Right? Pull that wine out of a box now. Then you can do that. But at a moment where you're not sure what's going to happen or how this is going to be provided for or what's going to show, what do you get? But the Messiah working. And not just sort of working, but 
abundantly working. This is the great thing about Jesus. Let's just, I mean, the, the, as you're reading the Gospel of John, it's going to be hard for us because we're going to have to ping pong a little bit. And what I mean by that is there's things going on in the story, but this was written at the time when those things were already revealed. And the Spirit had already come. And so, so at times, John's going to give you some clues to say, hey, just so you know, we didn't understand this in the moment, but once he rose, we got it. Like he's going to put little breadcrumbs in there to say, well, we didn't get it, but now we get it. Or we didn't understand it, but now we understand it. You're going to see that really soon. With the, Tear this temple down, and in three days, I'll raise it up. And they're like, we didn't even know what the heck that meant until we recognized it was his body. He was talking about his body. But we didn't know that until he rose on the third day. Then we got it. So as you read John, you're going to have to realize that John's speaking about things that have happened. And since the event of John 2, and he's writing about it, more has been revealed about Jesus. Right? So, so that's always something that as Christians we look and go, okay, well, what was happening in the moment? But we don't have just what happened in the moment. We had what continued to happen. That's why John talks about the Spirit so often. Well, the Spirit had come. And so he's giving instruction on the Spirit that has come when in the moment it might not have been as clear. Okay? So that's always going to happen as people are interacting with Jesus. Like in John 3, he's talking about being born again. And he's talking to Nicodemus. And Jesus, the, the, the total provision for being born again had not come, but at the same time, it always was the work of the Son, right? So, so he's talking to Nicodemus about something that's going to, is true, and will be demonstrated as actually true when the Spirit comes and we're born. So we have to recognize that's always what's going on. So what do you have here? Jesus is not just showing up to the party, crashing it with his disciples, and then trying to show off a little bit. He's bringing something amazing from a place you wouldn't have expected it. Because he's abundantly gracious. For those in the room who might be wondering, is Jesus, is he really that good? Is he really that gracious? Does he, does he forgive? I mean, when we talk about past, present, and future sins, and all of that being forgiven in the work of Jesus... Do we, do we feel the weight of that and the awesomeness of that? That his forgiveness of you has filled up to the brim. You're overflowing with forgiveness. He has forgiven it all. Even that, even that. Even the thing I'm embarrassed to talk about, even the thing you're embarrassed to talk about, he's forgiven it. Because he's gracious and the work that he does is superior to the work of the law. It is better than the work of the law. This is what the author of Hebrews was trying so hard to argue with those he was writing to. You can't go back to the law because it doesn't work. It doesn't save. You can't go from greater to lesser and expect lesser to be greater than greater. It won't. Jesus is greater. He's more loving. His grace overflows. He demonstrates it all the time. You're going to see it. I mean, we're just going to get there next week when he talks about the temple. There's the temple of the place where worship happened. But then what does Jesus say? Destroy this temple. And what is he saying? 
I'm better than that. Right? The, the work of, of my temple and what happens in my temple is going to save you. This work is superior to that work. What he brings out of those purification jars, no Jewish man, woman, or child could have ever brought out. Because they're not the Messiah. They don't bring that grace. And so as we go in their shock, we see John say this. This is the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and Galilee. Meaning he did more even while he was there. Did more things. But this was the first one he did. Now look. And all his disciples believed in him. That word is going to flex as we go through the Gospel of John. It's going to flex because some people believe in Jesus because he does cool things. And then when the teaching gets ratcheted up in like John chapter 6, they go, I'm out. I'm not for this Jesus. It was cool when you were powerful and it's cool when you were feeding people. That's really cool. But this eat my flesh, drink my blood, find your life in me, not for that. Right? And so as you look at this idea of believe, right, there is people going, okay, there's something to this guy. But there's this continual unfolding of them understanding who he is. And there'll be times in John where the belief is superficial. You see that actually at the end of chapter 2. where They go, well, some believed because he was doing all these works. But Jesus didn't believe in them. He didn't entrust himself to them. Because he knew what was actually in them. So we have that. So his disciples believed in him. His disciples believed in him. The result of this power was that those who were near him, those who he had called, right? He's specifying his disciples were the ones who really saw it. His disciples believed in him. They were continuing to learn who he was. They were continuing to see his power. The disciples believed because they saw now, here's the thing for us, and we're going to follow this journey, even of the disciples, and sometimes they're going to get it, and sometimes they're not going to get it, sometimes they're going to understand what he's teaching, sometimes they're not going to understand what he's teaching, and as it goes with Jesus' disciples, so it goes with us, right? Like, like you might feel like you are believing at 100% of your capacity right now. You go, I'm full up with belief, I got it all. And then you go, no, you know, you have, then you have one of those moments where you're like, no, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. You have one of those moments where you're like, I'm struggling in this area. Lord, please fill the gap. I don't know what's going on. That's going to continue to happen. But here's the glorious thing about Jesus. You don't keep yourself saved. Right? Like, so, so very often we start to shift and think, oh, no, my belief, my confidence is going to keep me there. I'm so glad God got me in the door, but I have to work really hard to be sure that my confidence in what he did keeps me there. That's not it. That's not it. So as we journey through this, what we're going to have to keep doing is going back to, what does it mean to believe in Jesus, the Messiah, who's better than the law, who fulfills the law, who I don't have to go and sacrifice anymore. I get all of him. 
We're going to have to constantly, almost every passage that we go through, just look at it and go, how does this help me believe? And what we get to see today and what we'll see next week and what we'll see throughout John is that Jesus brings the world a new way of understanding how God operates. A misunderstood way at first. He brings this world, him. And it was a different work. There was messianic expectation. And he is doing in keeping with what had been revealed. But it was missed misunderstood and missed, and Jesus brings this world, him, a way that is overflowing with life. But to make that adjustment in our hearts and our heads, we have to let go of the things that we think save, of the things that we think work, or of the things that we think purify. What do I mean by that? For example, don't seek old ways to find new life. Don't seek old ways to find new life. An example might be an old belief system. An old jar. Won't work. An old way, an old habit. Here's something that in this culture we might all resonate with in some way. Work harder and God will love you. Something that, if you've been following Jesus for 10 minutes or 70 years, that temptation is real. To think, if I do more things, God will be more happy with me. Well, if he's more happy with you, then he could be more happy with the sun. Which doesn't work. Can we be more obedient? Yeah. Yeah, we can, we, can, we can be more obedient in the sense that in this life, as we live it out, there are ways that we could better conform to what God is working out in us. Yes, but we can't be more loved. So if we go to, well, if I do more, God's going to love me more, right? What is that? Old, false, wrong way of thinking. It is not full of life. It is not full of grace. That belief system might manifest itself in something like this. If, you're just, if you just do more good than bad, you're all right. All right in what sense? In the sense that I look better than you? Sure. That doesn't save me. It doesn't save you. And yet so often, we run across people who might think that. Work hard, do good things, be nice, and God will be more satisfied. All of those are manifestations of this idea that you can, you can gain and earn God's favor by how you work. You can't do it. I would even say this. Our religious behavior, our religious behavior can sometimes become a notch in our belt to think that we're doing right with God. 
These are problems that the Jewish leaders were dealing with as they were going through and seeing the work of the Messiah. And Jesus would teach and instruct and try and help them realize, no. It's not your religious behavior. It's not, well, I do this, and I do this, and I do this. And the funny thing is, in Genesis, we're going to encourage you to be involved in things. We're not going to encourage you to be involved in things because God likes you more. But what starts to happen is that we do more things, maybe a good thing happens. A good thing happens. And we go, oh, it must be because I've been doing okay. Well, what did you just... What did you just kind of settle into? Karma. Do good things, good thing happens. Do bad things, bad thing happens. What goes around comes around. And that's not what you get with Jesus. What you get with Jesus is, watch this, grace. You just get more grace. And when you screw it up, you get more grace. And you get more grace. And you get more grace. That's what we get. We don't get in by grace and then get a new set of rules that we live by so we can get more grace. We just get all of it filled to the brim. So much so that it's stunning. Because that's the response of the headmaster of the, of the wedding, isn't it? Wait a minute. No one does this. No one does this. He thought the, the bridegroom got credit. If I were the bridegroom, I'd be like, yeah, well, you know. Really care about our guests. And that's the funny thing even about this miracle. Jesus doesn't need any credit. He doesn't go back through the the reception line and go, oh yes, I'm the guy that made the water into wine. You like the wine you're drinking? That's for me. Here's my card. Jesus, Messiah, come talk to me sometime. Why? Because he doesn't care about accolades. He doesn't care about earthly status. He only cares about doing the will of his Father. And what comes from him is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Better than any system. Better than any purification. Better than any belief other than Jesus saves. One of the hardest things to do, I want to encourage you to do it. If you're here today and you would say, I am not a Christian. I do not follow Jesus. I don't. It's not my thing. Receiving grace is one of the hardest things to do. And remaining in grace is one of the hardest things to do. Because you have to constantly come up against the fact that Jesus did it and you didn't. What does the, really the bridegroom have to do? I jokingly would say I'd take credit for it. But you just go, I didn't do that. I didn't do that. He did that. What did we talk about when the disciples were there with Jesus? And what did they say? Come and see this guy. Come see him. That's what we do. I didn't do it. He did. You should see him. You should trust him. You should follow him. Because it doesn't get better. It doesn't get better. And one of the hardest things for our hearts to do is to attach ourselves to that Reality. Again, if you read Hebrews, you see it. People going, maybe we should go back. Maybe we should go back to old systems, old ways, old understandings. Because they're safe. They're controllable. And grace isn't.
I think about us and just a prayer I have for our church this year. I'd love for you to pray it with me as well. Is that we just become, not Eugene, Philip Yancey in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace, talks about this phrase, conduits of grace. Conduits of grace. That we are just dispensers of what we have in Christ. And, and I, I'm, I, think, I, don't, I don't think I would love anything more than a church full of people who are zealous to extend grace because they've received it to a world that would be shocked by it. Where did you find this? Him. Him. Jesus is where I found it. I would love nothing more than week after week People come in these doors through relationships that you have, that we have, who go, I need what they have. I need that. And we're so happy to go, I know where it comes from. It comes from Jesus, the Messiah. The one who's more powerful than things in this world. The one who has more strength than anything in this world. The one who saves. When I could not, it is him. May verse 11, in its truest sense, be true for all of us. This was the first he did. And he manifested his glory, meaning people saw the Father. They saw who God was. And his disciples believed. May we be a church that believes and from our belief comes a zeal that we cannot contain, that we cannot control because it comes from God. When we see Jesus and Nicodemus talking, John 3, 1 through 15 in a couple of weeks, Jesus uses the illustration. He goes, the wind blows wherever it may and you don't know where it came from. So it is with anyone born of God born of the Spirit. It comes from God, and you didn't control it. You can't contain it. It is Him. And I think sometimes we, it's not that we, maybe it is. I say we don't want that. We don't think about that. That we don't scream that Jesus is the place you can find grace. When you see your neighbor, or you see your friend going through a difficult time, and you could just give them grace, because I tell you, it's not going to run out. This one who has the power to do something unexpected at a time that was unexpected. When you thought the party was over, what does Jesus do? Step in. And do something you would have never expected. And his disciples believed. 